Welcome to the Newson Health Menopause Podcast. I'm Dr. Louise Newson, a GP and menopause specialist, and I'm also the founder of the Menopause Charity. In addition, I run the Newson Health Menopause and Wellbeing Clinic here in Stratford-upon-Avon. So on this week's podcast, I'm very pleased and honoured to have with me Dr. Melanie Martins, who is a friend of a friend. Like a lot of the doctors that work with me, I've known of her through another doctor who works with me and I first met probably about a year ago and so Mel's now started working with us and I've been very grateful because she's agreed to talk a bit about her sort of own personal journey as well so thanks for joining me today Mel. Thank you very much Louise, thank you for inviting me. So you're a GP aren't you? I am. Married to a cardiologist who coincidentally works at the same hospital as my husband so I'm very, I think I am a bit spiritual actually and I really like connections and I also feel that life is a bit of a journey that's, it's not set in stone but it's sanded out for us and we have to meet various things I really believe and so sometimes fate gets people together and um so you came and sat in the clinic, it was probably about a, was it about a year ago? About a year ago now, yep, absolutely. Uh, well, initially a little bit longer and then with COVID, there's been some silver linings, you know, being able to work remotely. And so actually probably a little bit longer, but then things sort of expanded with COVID, yes. Yeah, so have you always been interested in menopause care then with your patients? Yeah, so I think women's health has always been a thread throughout my career. And then for me personally, out of the blue, 12 years ago, I was diagnosed in my mid-30s with breast cancer. Mm. And that really obviously had a huge personal Mm. impact, both personally and professionally, and really kind of furthered my interest in, in particular, menopause and HRT, and in particular in women who have been through breast cancer. So, I mean, women's health has always been a thread through my career, but then our own personal experiences definitely shape then, you know, our interests and our journey. Mm, so gosh so you were mid-30s and you've got children I do I do and at the time my children were well my son was 19 months and my daughter was actually turning four that weekend it was an absolute nightmare actually I had 25 people coming for a birthday party the next day um but yes so my children were very young gosh and so did you just find a lump presumably well my story And I think it's really interesting because, you know, everybody has a totally individual story. Mm. And I think the more I learn about breast cancer, I think the more I realise it's so complex and everybody's story is very, very different. But for me, I actually had had a benign lump of fibroadenoma, so nothing worrying, removed actually in my early 20s. And I had a scar and it was quite sizable. So I had a a sizable scar. And actually, interestingly for me, the first thing to learn me was that my scar started to become tethered and changed Mm. and I had some kind of hardening I obviously had a bit of scar tissue under there anyway Mm. but actually I had some hardening of that kind of area and it just didn't feel right and that was what alerted me to go and get it checked Mm. and I was actually 34 at the time and as a general kind of rule of thumb as a guidance they don't generally do um, mammograms under the age of 35 because our breast tissue is still very dense Mm. you know at that age so I had an ultrasound scan at that time and that actually came back looking okay but then a few months went past and it just it just didn't feel right and I just it just didn't sit comfortably so I went back and at that stage I did a mammogram and I had extensive 
throughout, this was on my right breast, extensive changes consistent with DCIS, which is mm-hmm. ductal carcinoma in situ, very kind of, I suppose you could call it very early stage because it hasn't invaded yes. and went on to have a biopsy and that kind of confirmed the kind of high grade ductal carcinoma in situ. But it was really extensive. It was throughout my right breast. And so at that stage, I had a mastectomy. Gosh. And actually, I was I was very young. I had absolutely no risk factors, you know, mm-hmm. nothing at all, no family history, you know, like, no, it was really out the blue. So kind of with discussion, and it was very much my choice, you know, my, my personality is I'm, I'm not a worrier by nature, but I just felt mm-hmm. I was so young, my children were so young, this was so out the blue, and there were a couple of possibly suspicious areas on the other side, so I actually opted for a bilateral mastectomy, but that was my choice, because yes. I just felt that I couldn't, I didn't want to live with the worry or the risk. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of how it's presented, and I suppose the first stage of, you know, my journey. Mm. And it is a personal decision, isn't it? You know, some people do, and and also say, guided by medical advice. And and I think that's so important because breast cancer is very different to very many people. And I think it's more unusual than some of the other cancers, isn't it? I think if someone has a a type of, I don't know, skin cancer or even an endometrial cancer, so the lining of the womb. Absolutely. And I think that's really important. Everybody's, you know, journey is, is absolutely individual. And, you know... Thankfully, brilliantly, the prognosis and survival from breast cancer is just increasing, increasing, which is absolutely, you know, fantastic. And surgery remains, you know, very important and the mainstay of treatment. But then there's lots of other treatments, you know, on top of the surgery. And following my surgery, I did go on to have radiotherapy to the Mm. right side. And at that stage, I was then put on tamoxifen as well, Mm. because, you know, the pros and cons and the risks and benefits are discussed. And at the end of the day, well, I felt, and I'm sure a lot of women feel the same, you want to do everything you can to reduce your risk as much as possible. And so, you know, I opted to go for every treatment, you know, that I could. Mm. And I suppose that was for me, stage one really of of, or chapter one of what happened to me. And like I say, I think it's really important to know that for I would say probably the vast majority of women who have DCIS, hopefully that's the end of their story and yes. their, their journey. Unfortunately for me, it wasn't. But again, I think it's really important to know that everybody's yes. journey is very different. And for many women, you know, a lot of women with ductal carcinoma in situ never go on to develop any further problems at all. Yeah. And obviously they grade it as well. So your mm. risk of developing further problems will depend on the grade and the extent of it. So yes, it, it is really important to know that definitely everybody has a very different journey yeah so then what happened in chapter two then yeah so chapter two was um a bit of a wobble not really expected because I'd so I'd finished my I'd had my surgery I had had my radiotherapy I was on tamoxifen and I'd gone back to work um about Mm. about five months later five to six months later and I'd gone back to work and then the following year I was having some reconstructive surgery and I was advised to stop my tamoxifen for six weeks before my surgery. So I did that. And um, within that time, unfortunately, I developed a lump under my arm, which was obviously a little bit of a worry. Mm. So I went to have that checked out just before my kind of planned operation date. And when they biopsied that, that was actually an invasive cancer in my lymph nodes. Oh, gosh. So probably... The first part of my story may not retrospectively been the whole picture because ductal mm. carcinoma in situ 
you know, hasn't invaded into other tissues. Yes. But for me, I had an invasive cancer in my in my lymph nodes. So that then led me, my reconstruction was obviously put on hold. And that led me down the route of chemotherapy. And I suppose that's really the part where menopause came into my life. <laughs> By now I was 35, because it was a year later. Yeah. So my children were now three and five, still very young. Oh, man, it's just so sad to, you know, having children, young children, having a job is hard, yep. <laughs> but it's nothing. It's nothing compared to what you would have gone through. And also, I think going through something, again, which you weren't expecting and thinking, oh, I've got out, I've done it, and then something else. And I think life is so unpredictable, isn't it? And sometimes I think it's a really good job. We don't know what's in head of us. <laughs> because so did anyone talk to you about chemotherapy and menopause? I know you're medical, but I think sometimes I've been in hospital with various conditions and illnesses and people treat you a bit differently as a doctor because they expect you to know everything and I've always said just treat me like a patient absolutely absolutely but did anyone talk to you about menopause or well you know it's really interesting because exactly that you just want to be treated by a patient but you can't help the fact that there is this sort of extra layer of knowledge yes but absolutely you want to be treated by a patient and you know I've really really thought about this Louise because honestly I've had fantastic treatments and care and I'm you know it goes without saying you know I'm forever grateful for the amazing care I've had but I can honestly say and I've really racked my brains I don't think anybody ever spoke to me I remember signing consent forms for radiotherapy and telling me the risks were that and consent forms Mm. but I don't think anybody ever talked to me about the menopause at all I've got no recollection of it having said that there is so much going on at the time and there is definitely I know this sounds absolutely crazy but you know at the time going back to the very first initial sort of diagnosis Mm. my first thought was oh my goodness, I've got 25 people coming for a birthday party tomorrow. And then everything they were telling me, mm. you know, sort of goes Absolutely. out of your head. Yeah. And I know yeah. that sounds a bit crazy, but you're trying to process so much. Yeah. So I have no recollection at all. And that doesn't mean that it wasn't mm. ever mentioned at all. No. But I have no recollection. And I certainly, there was no in-depth conversation about it. So I have to say, when I started my chemo and it flung me into the menopause, and I think long is you know Mm. (laughs) my very first cycle you know that was it just you know knocked off my ovaries and that was it you know I wasn't expecting it I suppose is all I can say I wasn't expecting it and I think there's lots of things here really I think people often don't even know what chemotherapy is Mm. and obviously chemo is just chemicals so it's just drug treatments there's all sorts of different chemotherapy but often the one that's used or the types that are used for breast cancer can damage the way the ovaries work sometimes reversibly sometimes irreversibly and and again it's interesting so I because of me wanting to be an oncologist when I was a medical student so this is going back nearly 30 years I makes me feel really old I did an eight-week project at Christie Hospital in Manchester which is um, one of the sort of world's best hospitals for cancer and I did it with someone called Professor Tony Howell, who's a professor of medical oncology, and he runs now the preventative breast cancer unit in Manchester. It's a big unit. He still works, even though he's in his 70s. He's very, very inspirational and probably one of the most clever people I know. And I was sitting in his clinic, and it feels a bit like, actually, sitting in my menopause clinic now, the stories I was hearing was really, really sad because these women were coming. In medicine has advanced a lot 
since then, but it was a bit of a conveyor belt. These women come, here's your diagnosis, this is what you're having, you're going to have tamoxifen, you're going to have chemo, here you go, go to see the chemo nurse. And I sat there and I said, Tony, these women haven't got a clue what's happening. So of course they do. They've had cancer, they need to have treatment. I said, no, hang on a minute. What I want to do in my eight weeks is to write some patient information. And I want to write about tamoxifen because it was a relatively new drug then. No one knew what it was really. So I said, right, I'm going to write a booklet about tamoxifen. Then I sort of started talking to some women when Tony wasn't in the room and said, do you know what cancer is? They said, well, it means death. It means dying. It just means an awful disease. And I said, well, no, it doesn't actually. Yeah. And they were all talking about having their lymph nodes removed because back then a lot of women had their lymph nodes, all of them removed. It's very different mm-hmm. to now. So I said, do you know what your lymph nodes are? No. Isn't it something to do with a cold or virus because they come up in your neck? Do you know you have them in your armpit? No. Well, you've had surgery to your armpit. Well, no, they just told me. So I go back to Tony and say, do you know what? I'm going to have to do a series of booklets. I'm going to write one about what is cancer, one about what are lymph nodes, one about chemotherapy, because they didn't know anything about chemotherapy. And then my last one will be about tamoxifen. And he said, Louise, I don't think you need to do that. It's a waste of time. (laughs) So I said, right, your next patient that comes in the room, ask them, what is cancer? So he said, okay, I'll do this. So next patient, he said, oh, what do you understand the word cancer? And they said, well, it just means something really awful and I'll probably die from it. And he said, really? And he then he asked a few more patients. He said, Louise, I think you're right, actually. And don't forget, this was 1992, so yes. this was before the internet. Yeah. So it was very hard to get proper information. So, so I wrote these booklets. And in fact, then they were distributed to other hospitals and they were used a lot. And it was then that I thought, actually, the power of writing for patients it's immense. can be transformational. And now I think it's taken 20 years to think about the menopause as in, in a way of getting through to patients. And back then, as a medical student, obviously I had no training in the menopause. I didn't even know these women would have gone through the menopause. Yes. And I really kick myself now knowing what I know now. And then actually, again, this is something that I think is quite interesting. So Tony, because he just felt he needed to do better communication with his patients, although he was fantastic talking to patients, he went off and did a course with his wife at the time, who was someone called Leslie Fallowfield, who was a psychologist who did a lot of work, behavioural work, about consultation models. And so the two of them went off to a course at um, one of the cancer hospitals in London, and they were role-playing. So they were sort of pretending in this role-play that Leslie, his wife, had a new diagnosis of breast cancer. So the oncologist had come in. It was all just on a film. It was a role play. And they said, right, your results have come back. You've got cancer. And then they talked about treatment options, everything else. And then afterwards, they said, right, write down everything you remember about the consultation. And Tony couldn't remember a thing. Now, he's a leading specialist, but he said the word cancer associated with my wife I couldn't listen anymore. I knew it wasn't even real. He knew it wasn't. She didn't have cancer. And that's the reality is that there's so much information, but so much is going through your mind at the time. And the leaflets and written information is so important because you can go back and refer to it. Because at the time, there's so much going through your mind and there's so much going on. And, you know, I'm a very practical, pragmatic person. I know this sounds crazy, but I was thinking, what am I going to do with the children? And how am I going, you know, because mm. you start thinking ahead. Of course you do. So it is really difficult. And, and so can I remember absolutely everything that was said? Of course I can't. I really can't. But what I do know for sure, there was never a discussion about the menopause. Yes. Ever. Yeah. There was never a discussion. So it might have been mentioned, but there was never a, a discussion about it. And I do often wonder how I'd feel. I think I could recognise 
even then it was very difficult because the problem is when you're having chemotherapy, you've got all the side effects of chemotherapy. You've kind of been flung into the menopause unexpectedly. So that's kind of like falling off a cliff mm. a little bit. But it all becomes one big mess of symptoms, really, yeah. to be honest. And I think really now, it's only now, all these years on, I can't believe it really, you know, all these years on, and especially because I've got such an interest in the menopause and I speak to, you know, working with you, which mm. is so fantastic. I speak to so many women with their symptoms with the menopause. I think it's only now that retrospectively I realise how many of my really difficult symptoms were actually more related to the menopause than chemo. Yeah. It's only now I look back and I obviously recognised at the time that some of those symptoms were menopausal. But I think if I wasn't medical, I don't think I would have known that if nobody would have told me that, you know, because it all gets bundled in together. And it's also very frightening. So as many of you listening know, bone pain, muscle aches, joint aches are very common symptoms, brain fog, memory problems. And some women who have cancer that spread, it can spread to their bones and cause bone pain. Some people, it can even spread to their veins and cause memory problems and confusion. And so I've spoken to a lot of patients who have had breast cancer who have been petrified that they've got a metastasis. And then the, the consultants quite rightly do lots and lots of scans. Very scary when you're waiting for a result. And then you're told, well, it's normal, but then they're not given a reason, an answer for why they're having these symptoms. Well, I look back retrospectively now. I had a CT scan of my head because I was having really bad migraines and I'm not a migraine sufferer and I was having migraines. And so I thought I had a brain metastasis because, you know, that's what you put two and two together. And I also had some bone pain and ended up having a bone scan. And I look back now and I think, honestly, I think that was all due to my menopausal symptoms. And did anyone tell you when the results were normal that it could be related to your hormones? No, no. It was very reassuring. I was very reassured that my results were normal, but there was no explanation. Or I don't know that the people... Because this is the thing, which is, you know, it's great in a way, you know, medicine's become very subspecialized. So mm-hmm. probably the person who was reporting my CT scan and dealing with that didn't think it was related to my hormones either because they didn't know the whole picture. No, and it is really important, isn't it? And it's not just for women who have had breast cancer. I think menopausal or perimenopausal in general have all sorts of symptoms which medics often can't attribute to. So I know. Your lovely husband is a cardiologist. He sees lots of women with palpitations and he reassures them and says there's nothing wrong with your heart. But they're still having those symptoms and often they're related to their hormones. So it's really nice as a patient because actually sometimes you think you're going mad or you're making it up. And there is a thing called somatization. So when people often are depressed or anxious, you can then manifest symptoms that aren't real. And lots of us, including myself, and I was experiencing menopausal symptoms, think, well, am I going mad? Is it my mental state that's causing this overwhelming headaches, anxiety? You know, and so I think it's really reassuring. If someone had said to even me five years ago, Louise, these are all related to your hormones, these symptoms. I would have gone, oh, okay. Even if I didn't want any treatment, it's not about treatment. It's about making the right diagnosis, I think, isn't it? And it's about understanding why you're experiencing those symptoms, isn't it? Mm. Because when you know the reason why, you can either stop worrying about it because you think, oh, well, I know why that's happening or do something about it if you do want to do something about it. Yes, I think that's totally true. And so a lot of people, I get a lot of criticisms, as you know, from all sorts of people, but some people say, well, all you're trying to do is medicalise the menopause and you're trying to push HRT onto everyone. And obviously I there are a lot of women who 
should have HRT that are being denied it. But actually, my counter argument is, I actually want to try and empower women with the right knowledge and information so they can make the right choices for them. And I think that's what's really important is taking a step back. You know, we've all seen women in the waiting room here who are worried they've got dementia because their mothers or their grandmothers have had dementia. So as a doctor, if we say to them, I don't think you've got dementia, I think this is related to your hormones, well, then they're so much better already just with those words. Absolutely. And I think that is exactly it. That's the key. There is no one size fits all for any of this. Mm. Whatever your situation, breast cancer, no breast cancer, you know, HRT, no HRT, there's no one size fits all. And I think the most important thing is, you know, having access to the right information. Mm. And so you can make an informed decision. And that's not always that easy. It sounds very straightforward. But actually, there's so much information out there to navigate. You know, you mentioned earlier about not having access to the internet, you know, all those years ago. And, you know, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because in a way, it's great because you can access this information. But it's not always the correct information or the right information or applicable to you as an individual. And that's the, the really important thing is making, you know, an individualized choice. And for me, I feel that... I'm a healthcare professional. This is my, you know, my job and my role and, you know, my training. And I still found it very, very difficult to navigate the information and apply it to my personal circumstances to the right or wrong thing to do, Mm. you know, further down the line when I was considering, you know, we can talk about this a little bit more, but in particular when I was considering the use of local vaginal oestrogen, I found that really difficult to navigate. And I just kept thinking, well, what about all those women out there who either can't access this information or if I'm finding it confusing, Yes. how do you navigate it? It's really difficult. And also for GPs as well, you know, obviously I am a GP and we can't know everything about mm. everything and we do our very best for all our patients. But I can understand as well for GPs how it can be really confusing and how they, you know, they desperately want to give their patient the right advice and they're nervous about you know, doing the wrong thing or giving them the wrong advice. And it's just really difficult sometimes to navigate all the information. It is. And I think it's really hard because then for busy doctors, like you say, you want to do the best, but then you'll read the top line of everything. You can't, you haven't got time to read all the references, all the articles. And then if you do, there's still, when we haven't got anything black and white, it makes it really difficult. It's very easy when we have really clear evidence But this area, we don't have clear evidence. So there's some evidence saying one thing, some saying the other. And it's fine to be general. But when it's for you, you want to know and you want to do what's right. And then some people are telling you one thing, one thing, and your mind's exploding. So I know you've been very open and you've written an article that's on Menopause Doctor website about your experience and your choice about having vaginal oestrogen. So for those of you listening, vaginal oestrogen is not HRT. It's a local preparation. And some of you listening have hopefully learned from other podcasts that we now term it genital urinary syndrome of the menopause, which is GSM. It's a long term, but basically it means there's lack of oestrogen in the vaginal tissues and the surrounding tissues. So not just the vagina, but the vulval, the external area, but also the pelvic floor, the bladder. And so a lot of women, about 80% of menopausal women, experience these symptoms which cause irritation, burning, soreness. A lot of women find it very difficult to wear underclothes, to sit down, but also can have urinary symptoms. And one of the main treatments we often offer or give is vaginal oestrogen because it works very locally so it doesn't get absorbed into the body 
which means it has far less contra or relative contraindications than HRT. But like you're saying, Mav, you know all that, <laughs> but you were still very scared of having anything labelled oestrogen close to your body, weren't you? Which I understand. Yeah, I was. And I think the thing is that I'd spent the last 10 plus years doing everything in my power to get rid of every single drop of oestrogen. So... I went through the menopause during chemotherapy, but then after my chemotherapy, because I was still young, I was still only 35, because I'd previously been on the tamoxifen and then that had stopped and I'd, you know, I'd obviously had this cancer in my lymph nodes really effectively whilst I was on the tamoxifen, they decided to change me to an aromatase inhibitor. So I was on something called an astrazole and you can only have that if you're postmenopausal. And because I was still only 35, obviously there was a risk of... I say risk, you know, who knows whether your ovaries might start kicking back into action effectively. So I was put on a Zolodex injection to make sure that my ovaries, you know, didn't kick back into action. And then I was on that for, you lose track of time, maybe, you know, nine to 12 months. And then I actually had my ovaries removed. And then I stayed on my aromatase inhibitor and astrazole for 10 years. And so I'd spent the last 10 years making sure that I did not have one drop of estrogen in my body. Mm. And that's fine. And, you know, that was my choice. And I wanted to do that. I wanted to do absolutely everything to, and I don't want to sound dramatic, but to survive, you know? Yeah, totally. And, you know, it'd been a journey with lots of twists and turns and unexpected Mm. things along the way. And so, you know, I'd spent all this time making myself as deficient of estrogen as possible. And, you know, my menopausal symptoms when I was having chemotherapy, you know, I had, I mean, dreadful, drenching night sweats, joint aches, you know, we talked about kind of migraines and headaches. But actually, those things, you know, actually did get better over the years. They did improve. So that was great. And I'm very lucky because for some women, they don't improve. But, you know, like my night sweats, for example, you know, when I say drenching, I said, you know, I have to sleep on a towel. I mean, it was terrible for about, you know, a year and then another year where it was bad, but not so bad. And then a couple of years where, you know, the normal triggers, alcohol, caffeine would trigger it, but it was manageable. I could make lifestyle changes to control it. So that was all fine. And then actually, I'm very lucky. They've gone away now. So in, in, in that respect, I'm very lucky. So a lot of my menopausal symptoms over the years got much better or completely resolved, which is fantastic. But unfortunately, vulval vaginal symptoms, GSM, as you've said, as we call it now, genital urinary syndrome of the menopause, you know, without estrogen, that just gets worse and worse and worse over the years. Mm. And that's been my experience. And despite, you know, trying all the non-hormonal treatments, emollient washes, moisturizers, etc., etc., for me, actually, And again, everybody is individual and it works very well for many women. But for me, it just caused more irritation and actually started really, really negatively impacting on my quality of life. But actually, I was in a bit of turmoil about it because I spent all these years thinking I can't have any estrogen, no estrogen, estrogen is my enemy. And then to actually give yourself some local vaginal estrogen, even though, like you say, there's no evidence of any increased risk, it just felt very counterintuitive. And it took me really quite a long time to go for it and I have started using local vaginal estrogen you know not that long ago really within the last kind of six nine months and it has really and again I don't mean this to sound dramatic but it's really transformed my life and my quality of life it was really impacting on me really really negatively and you know sometimes I think oh should I have just done it earlier but you know the truth is Louise I wasn't ready to do it earlier you have to be ready and comfortable with your own decisions I suppose that's 
I think I said earlier, I'm a very pragmatic person. And I think I've always think in life, you can only make every decision based on the information at the time and how you feel at the time. And so you can't really look back with regret because I kind of came to this junction a few times and thought, should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I? And clearly in myself, I wasn't ready to make that step. I was still also on my aromatase inhibitor. And I just, I suppose I hadn't completed my breast cancer treatment at that time. Mm. But actually for me, you know, more recently I've made that decision. It's a decision I'm very comfortable with. I'm so Mm. happy I made that decision. And for any women out there who do have really severe vulvovaginal symptoms, you know, it works very quickly. And, you know, the other thing is no decision is ever set in stone. You can change your mind, you know. And I think that's so important, isn't it? I think you have to be ready for your right decision. And that's not just about what treatment to take. It's about what car you buy or what holiday you go on if we're allowed to go on holiday or you know what to wear in the morning it's an individual choice and you shouldn't be judged by other people I think that's really really important but also any decision is reversible and we see a lot of women who've had breast cancer in the clinic and sometimes it is just talking I saw someone the other day who's on aromatase inhibitor she's about four years since her breast cancer diagnosis and she said that her body feels numb from the waist downwards and she's cries out in pain every night because she feels like her bones have been wrung and they're so painful but no one had talked to her about the menopause and she's just now gone away to listen to a few podcasts that we've done to read a book to just have a think about even just taking four weeks off her aromatase inhibitor or six weeks to see if that just helps, you know, not any radical treatment. Yep. And she came away really happy. And I was thinking, gosh, as a doctor, I haven't prescribed anything. I haven't. But actually, she needed a bit of time to talk. And I think that's absolutely right. It's fine, whatever anyone decides. And no one will judge anyone for what they decide. I find that commonly in consultations. You know, sometimes you think, oh, have I actually done that much? But actually, women mm. are really, really grateful to just talk it through because it's so individual. There's yeah. no one size fits all. So it's talking through what may be right for them and what their yes. options are and having the right information and the time and space to come to that decision in their own time yes. and a decision that they're comfortable with. And I think if we can help women do that, then I think that's really good. I totally agree. And I think there's two things. So I've written a consensus statement for the British Society of Sexual Medicine about the management of genitourinary syndrome and menopause, which I know you've read. And that took me a long time to do. Thank you. (laughs) Because we've referenced it, but I've already said there isn't great research, but we do know that there isn't this systemic absorption of estrogen. And so I feel very strongly for those women with severe symptoms or symptoms impacting, that it should be a choice to have vaginal estrogen. And so we've written this, which I'm hoping really helps healthcare professionals. But more recently, we've just published a book and actually the written ones are downstairs in the clinic. I'm very excited. I've seen them for the first time. They're actual paper versions of this booklet for women who've had breast cancer. And I'm really, really grateful. And I'm saying it publicly because I am so grateful to you, Mel, because you and one of our other doctors, Jenny McCracken, have contributed to it as well. And we've written this booklet. And I think actually it's probably one of the hardest pieces of work I've done. And even though I know you did a huge amount of work, I still kept reading it and editing it and rereading it. And I've written a lot over the last 20 years being a medical writer as well as a doctor. But this was really difficult because every word was crucially important to get right and I hope we've had some lovely feedback already but I hope it's been written in a really sensitive 
But also I love your word pragmatic because I think it has been pragmatic as well. But we've done it so that we're not saying you must do this, you must do that. We've just laid out facts in a very, I think, sensitive way. So if you had been given this when you were having your chemotherapy, you might have thought this isn't relevant to me and put it on a shelf. But then you might have been able to come back to it. Or your husband might have read it or your relative, you know, someone might have read or your friend. I think that's it. I think you come back to these things because you're so in the moment of Mm. beating the breast cancer, as you should be. That is everybody's goal. And that's great. But what happens is you get 10 years on plus or five, wherever you are. And actually, often you're discharged from, you know, the cancer care part of it by then. And, you know, I really, really hope that booklet does help women. I suppose as we were writing it, in my mind, I was thinking, well, what information would I have wanted at the time or wanted now to go back to, Mm. you know, take the doctor part away from it, you know, from a very, you know, personal point of view. And as you say, the booklet isn't about, it's just about there are options. It's not about telling people what they should or shouldn't do. There's no right or wrong for it. It's about individual choice. And I think for me personally, it would have been wonderful to have that either at the time or to go back to, or for women to be able to access it now via, you know, the platform that you've created is fantastic because it puts it out there for women. And as you say already, you know, there's been a lot of feedback from women that they're so grateful to just you know, have that information and not be searching the internet and having conflicting Mm, information and trying to muddle through it themselves. Um, So I really hope it's a resource that women can tap into and find really useful just for them to decide what's right for them as an individual. Absolutely. So I really hope so. And it's available to download from the resources section of the Menopause Doctor website. And we're trying to get it out to other cancer centres as well. So I'm really, really grateful for you, Mel, because I know it's always hard talking about your own story and especially as a healthcare professional as well. But I know this podcast will have helped so many people, not just women, but other people as well so thank you and before we end I just want three take-home tips in a traditional style for women who have had breast cancer who might have been listening to this and thinking right how do I get help what should I do what are three things that you think would be useful for them to do okay I think the first tip is go onto your website and download that resource. It's, yeah. you know, it's there in one place now and there's lots of information, you know, podcasts and information on the Menopause Doctor website, as you say, under resources. And, you know, there's so much misinformation that actually, you know, finding that information and reading it through, I think that's the first thing. My second take-home tip, I'm actually going to come back to the vulvar vaginal side of things, if that's okay because you know as I say I've chosen my other menopausal symptoms got better and so I'm not on HRT but I have used vaginal estrogen or I'm using vaginal estrogen I think you know a really simple take-home tip as well which often we forget and it's really simple if you do have vulvar vaginal symptoms use of an emollient wash is absolutely brilliant Mm -hmm. and I know we didn't really talk about it earlier, but as a take-home tip, I just want to sort of put that message out there, you know, stopping using soaps and shower gels, and you can just buy it from over the counter, using an emollient wash is absolutely brilliant, and it's a good starting point while you're deciding Mm. if you think you want to consider other options. And again, I suppose leading on from that, I just suppose I want to say that whilst other symptoms sometimes do get better, unfortunately, vulvar vaginal symptoms won't get better in time. They will get worse. And so if you're struggling, I suppose I just 
would like to say to you know women out there don't struggle on and struggle on and struggle on and get to the point of desperation because you know as you've said there's not lots of data but you know vaginal estrogen is safe it can be used long term if you choose to and it can be used with or without HRT so I suppose the take-home message which I suppose ties in all those three points is you know find the right information and make a decision that's right for you but the most important thing is be at peace with that decision you know be at peace with that decision because everyone will have different opinions but if you've got the right information you can make the decision that's right for you as an individual I think that's so important and what a fantastic way to end and for anyone that is suffering and hasn't got the right help keep asking keep finding the right person and sometimes it might not be a doctor it might be a nurse might be a pelvic floor physio might be someone else or just a friend who can come with you to the next appointment so I really appreciate your time so thanks so much Mel it's been really interesting so thank you thank you for having me Louise thank you for more information about the perimenopause and menopause you can go to my website menopausedoctor.co.uk or you can download our free app called Balance, available through the App Store and Google Play.